Well, good morning. It's good seeing all of you guys. Welcome to Forest Park. Um, before we get into the Word, before I pray for us, um, I just want to draw your attention um, to our member gathering next um, Sunday at, at 6 o'clock. And um, why it is so important uh, for you guys to, to participate uh, in this. Um, this coming week, you're going to receive an email from me where I will announce um, elder nominations and, and also make a little video talking about um, what we're going to discuss in our member gathering. Really, it's a time for us. We're going to present um, these elder nominations and we're, we're going to talk about um, what is an elder, what is the role of an elder, what does an elder do at our church, what is the process of uh, nominating an elder and the steps that we have taken, and then also talk about what your role in confirming uh, these elder nominations and then answer some questions if there's any questions like for example are those these is, are these the only elder nominations or are there more elder nominations in the pipeline and so this is why um, we're really at a pivotal moment um, in our church where we are uh, bringing in new elders that can help shepherd the church and I want to encourage you and part uh, to please participate in this. If you cannot physically um, participate against my better judgment, we will have a Teams link, although please, uh, I, I beg of you, please make a point of coming here physically, but if you cannot due to some uh, restraints, I understand, so there will also be a Teams link uh, for the meeting for you to participate. Again, it's so important for all of us to come and participate, gather uh, as a family. Um, if I had a bribe, I would bribe all of you, but I don't, um, so maybe I can do the parent guilt trip. Um, do not disappoint your pastor. Does that work? <laughs> no, it, it doesn't work. Shame on you. No. Um, but, but please, um, it is so important for us to come. Um, so let, let me pray for us and then we get into the word. Lord, I, I thank you so much for your faithfulness. God, I thank you for the incredible mercy and grace that you have lavished on us. Lord, I'm just overwhelmed that in the assurance in Ephesians, <laughs> how we read, but because of your great love that you had for us, you made us alive with Christ. It is by grace that we've saved. It's not by our own doing. Oh Lord, may we just comprehend the incredible salvation that you have accomplished for us and applied to us and the wonderful benefits that we have in you lord jesus may you stir our hearts so we can just be in awe of you and lord i pray that as we look at the text as we see that you are king well can you just overwhelm us by the truth that the king came to die for his subjects He's not like an earthly king. He's a different king. And Lord, may we just behold you as king and just be overwhelmed by you as king. And may it encourage our hearts to live for you. May for some of it, us convict us as it brings us to repentance, knowing that we are in rebellion of the king. And if we continue in our rebellion, there will be judgment. But the king has provided a way in. May we trust you as king, submit to you as king knowing that your kingdom is a wonderful kingdom to live. We love you and we praise you. We ask all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. So if you have your Bibles, let's turn to John chapter 18. Um, we're going to start in verse 28. 
Um, so last week, John wrote the account of the cross. And when he's writing about the account of the cross, his focus is not on human liability, but rather what he's trying to show us, especially last week, what he is showing us, that Jesus is a sovereign Savior and that every step of the way to the cross was planned and controlled by Jesus. And Jesus himself said in John 10, verse 17 to 18, I lay down my life so that I may take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down on my own. And so when we read the narrative of the cross from a human perspective, it almost seems like Jesus kind of lost control and was just swept away by everything. But what John is showing us, he's saying, no, no, no. Jesus is orchestrating every encounter and every event is revealing that he is a sovereign savior that is in control. And so as he showed us last week that Jesus is a sovereign Savior, in our text today, what we're going to see is a dominant theme of Jesus standing trial before Pilate that he is king. Four times publicly, Pilate's going to refer to Jesus as king of the Jews. And when Pilate gives in to the wishes of the Jewish authorities and orders his execution, he makes a sign that's hung on the cross. Here here is the king of the Jews. And not only does Pilate mention Jesus as the king of the Jews, but we also see the soldiers. They dress him up in purple, put a crown of thorns on his head, and mock him and hail him. And yet they are implying in their mockery he is king. And so by all of this going on, it kind of makes us wonder, like, does Pilate, uh, why does Pilate continue to use the title King of the Jews? Does he really believe that Jesus is a king, the prophesied king? Now, now before we get into the text, I think it's best for us to maybe do a little homework and lay some of the groundwork and maybe briefly, and I mentioned briefly because we can be here all day, kind of talk about this idea of the promised king, where that came about and how it was developed throughout scripture and how it ultimately points to Jesus. So in two minutes, we're going to summarize all of this. Now, in Genesis 49, don't start the timer because I probably just lied, uh, three, four minutes, okay? So in Genesis 49, right before Jacob's about to die, he gathers all of his sons to circle around him, and he speaks a blessing on each of their lives. But then when he turns towards Judah, he kind of gives this obscure blessing that, that somehow a king is going to come from Judah that's going to rule over the nations. And then the promise is repeated and expanded by Balaam's prophecy uh, in Numbers 24, verse 17. And as we move forward in Israel's history, we see Moses and Joshua leading the people out of slavery into the promised land, and neither of them are a king. And then we see various judges who deliver Israel from foreign power, and yet they are not kings. And the book of Judges ends this way. In those days, there was no king in Israel. And eventually, Israel gets a king. Because what ultimately happens is they reject God as king. And in their rebellion, they're saying, we want our own king because we want to look like all the other nations. And so God gives them a king after their own heart. And he gives them King Saul, and and we find out Saul is a tall guy, and yet he ends up failing right off the bat. 
And he ends up being a bad king. And then there's a second king, a king that's not after man's own heart, but rather after God's own heart. And his name is David. And David was a great king. And one might wonder, like, is David the fulfillment of the promise? He is from the line of Judah, and he is conquering nations, and there is peace during his reign, and yet we find out in First Chronicles 7 that David is not the king because God makes a covenant with David, and from verses 11 to 14, we find that he's not the king, but a king is going to come from the line of David. In other words, he will be a son of David, but then he'll also be a son of God, and he will rule over all with an eternal kingdom. And so throughout the Bible, the Old Testament, you're wondering, who is this king? And then we come into the New Testament, and we go to John 1, 49, and Nathanael, a devout Jew, calls Jesus of Nazareth the king of Israel. And now he stands before Pilate, and he is called the king of the Jews. And one might be wondering, is Jesus the promised king of the Jews? Why is Pilate continually referring to Jesus as the king of the Jews? Does Pilate believe really that Jesus is the prophesied king, or is he just mocking the Jews for pressing him to kill a man that he wants to release? So let's try to answer these questions by looking at our text and seeing what's going on in our text. Let's look at uh, John 18, verse 28. It says this, Then they led Jesus from Caiaphas to the governor's headquarters. It was early morning. They did not enter the headquarters themselves. Otherwise, they would be defiled and unable to eat the Passover. So Pilate came out to them and said, What charge do you bring against this man? They answered him, If this man weren't a criminal, we wouldn't have handed him over to you. Pilate told them, You take him and judge him according to your law. It's not legal for us to put anyone to death, the Jews declared. They said this so that Jesus' words might be fulfilled, indicating what kind of death he was going to die. So so let's stop here and do a little homework. Well, what's going on in our text? It seems to me that the Jewish leaders is bringing Jesus to Pilate with the expectation that Pilate is already confirmed the judgment and to order the death of Jesus via crucifixion. And instead of him executing it, now all of a sudden he's changing his mind and he wants to start off a fresh hearing. Now, this is causing confusion to the Jewish leaders and little frustration because they've already gone to Pilate and Pilate has already given them some Roman soldiers to arrest Jesus. So it's not like all of a sudden they come out of the woodworks and present this Jesus to Pilate and Pilate's never heard of anything what's going on. They've already gone to Pilate. Pilate has already given them Roman soldiers and now they're bringing Jesus to order the execution that they've already agreed on and now Now it seems like Pilate is backtracking and saying, hey, let's have a fresh hearing here. Like, like what's going on here? Why don't you judge them according to your laws? And you can see the Jewish authorities are a little agitated, like, dude, we kind of had an agreement. Do you really think we're going to waste your time and not bring a criminal to you? The reason we're bringing him to you is because of what we've already told you he has done wrong. That's why you gave us 
the soldiers. And what's going to happen is now is going to force these Jewish authorities to somehow take the charges that they have against Jesus and make the charges, kind of make it stick to Pilate, some charges he can understand with some political overtones that's really going to force his hand. And as this is going on, I love what, what, what John tells us in verse 32. He indicates to us, all of this is happening, why? They said this, verse 32, so that Jesus' words might be fulfilled, indicating what kind of death he was going to die. And so John is saying, why is this happening? Because Jesus is in control. This is indicating everything is setting up, playing out according to plan. Now here's the first question we have to answer. Even though the text doesn't tell us what charges that that they, they, they brought about Jesus to Pilate, we kind of have to figure out, like, what charges are they bringing to Pilate about Jesus? Look at verse 33. Then Pilate went back in to the headquarters, summoned Jesus, and said to him, Are you the king of the Jews? Let's stop here. Think about it with me here. The Jewish authorities, what's their main beef with Jesus? Their main beef with Jesus, in a sense, was theological. They perceived Jesus to be a threat because Jesus indirectly, indirectly implied that he is the Messiah and the Son of God. And so their main charge against Jesus is that he is a blasphemer. That's their charges. But here's the problem. They can't go to Pilate and say, hey, Pilate, we would like you to execute Jesus uh, because of the difference of our religious beliefs, because he's claiming to be the Messiah and the Son of God, and he's blaspheming God. Well, like, Pilate's a Gentile. He doesn't care about these kind of things. And more than likely, if they brought these charges to Pilate based on what they're accusing of blaspheming God, he would say, this is a religious thing. Why don't you deal with it in your own court of law? Like, figure it out yourself. And so what they're trying to do is, how can we take these charges that we have against Jesus and somehow make it understandable to Pilate and in the same way also cause a threat to Rome that would force Pilate's hand to move in our favor? So what do they do? They know the prophecy, the Messiah, the Son of God is also supposed to be the king. And now, rather than going to Pilate and saying, hey, this is a blasphemer, he's claiming to be the Messiah, son of God, now they're coming to him and saying, no, he's claiming to be a king. And if he's claiming to be a king, that could possibly cause a threat to the Roman Empire, which means this is no longer just a religious thing that we need to judge according to our own laws, but you might, you might have to take action because your job is to protect the empire. And if we bring somebody to you saying he's a threat claiming to be king and you don't do anything about it, and this kingdom and this king now starts to conquer the Roman Empire, we're going to go to Caesar and say, yeah, we kind of told him so, but he did not want to to act. And so now these charges 
has political overtones. Now Pilate is forced to really investigate. Rather than just dismiss it as some religious dysfunction and disagreement, it's like, "Uh uh-oh, what's going on? And so he goes to Jesus, and he says, Are you the king of the Jews? And look at how Jesus responds. Jesus answering in verse 34. Are you asking this on your own? Or have others told you about me? I'm not a Jew, am I? Pilate replied. Your own nation and the chief priests handed you over to me. What have you done? So Jesus responding to the simple question, Are you the king of the Jews? The response to it can't be a simple yes or no unless Jesus understands the motivation behind the question. And so this is what Jesus is doing. He's asking Pilate, what's the motivation behind the question? Are you simply asking me out of curiosity and you want further understanding? Because if that's the reason, then Jesus can, can, can provide more clarity. But if he's simply asking because he's just restating the charges that's brought against them, that means now he has to provide even more clarity and start from the very beginning so that Pilate could have an understanding of his kingship. And so Jesus wants to know, what's the motivation? And I just love this, but by Jesus kind of asking Pilate a question in response to his question what's what's Jesus doing again that's kind of what he did with the religious leaders the captor now is becoming the interrogator the prisoner now is becoming the judge the subject is now becoming the ruler and we see kind of Pilate he's a little agitated he has a mixed response Uh, on one hand he has no stake in the outcome and he really doesn't care about the claims of Jesus but then on the other hand he's simply not satisfied with the charges that's brought against Jesus by the Jewish authorities so on one hand he doesn't care but on the other hand he's like something is not right something is just not sitting right with me and this is why he is saying like What have you done? And by Pilate asking this question, what have you done? Now Jesus knows how to answer Pilate. Pilate wants a little bit more understanding, is a little bit more curious. And here's really our our main passage for this morning. Look Look at how Jesus responds. Verse 36 says this. My kingdom is not of this world, said Jesus. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would fight so that I wouldn't be handed over to the Jews. But as it is, my kingdom is not from here. This is a very important passage, and this passage is loaded. So let's break it down. What's going on here? The first thing that's kind of going on is Jesus, in a sense, is acknowledging that he is king by defining his kingdom. But here's what we have to understand. When Jesus is talking about his kingdom, 
when we read the words and hear the words kingdom and understand the word kingdom, we normally think about a geographical location, a territory. Like when you think about the word kingdom, what do you think about? You think about a beautiful land with a castle and big walls to protect the land, right? But in the Greek, and what the word kingdom means, it has nothing to do with a geographical location. But rather, when Jesus is talking about his kingdom, he's talking about his reign, or a word we're going to use is his kingship. So when he is saying his kingdom is not of this world, he is not meaning that his kingdom is far off in heaven in the outer galaxies and is on his way here to this world. But rather when he's saying his kingdom is not of this world, he's talking about his reign and his kingship. And so the very first truth that Jesus is communicating about his kingship, if you're taking notes, is Jesus' kingship is of a different origin and different order. His kingship is of a different origin and different order. Let, let me explain this to you. Jesus' reign, Jesus' kingship, is not of this world. And because it's not of this world, it operates differently. Now think with me a little bit. Think about the phrase, not of this world, or of this world. In the Bible, when it speaks of of this world, does it speak of in terms of positive or negative? It speaks in, in terms of negative okay so God created the world and everything that he created was was beautiful was was good he created man and it was very good however man rebelled against God and we are in constant rebellion against God our creator and because of our rebellion this world is known as the realm of of darkness, rebellion, destruction, and death. And the way that the kingdoms of this world operate, because they operate in a world of destruction, darkness, rebellion, and death, how do kingdoms come about? They come about through force and violence. You want to establish a kingdom, you ought to conquer people. And how do you conquer people? By killing them. And a pressing them and a slaving them and kingdoms expand their territories by constantly conquering and waging war and then also by defending because kingdoms come and kingdoms go and a successful kingdom is one with a strong element of defense and so the subjects of that kingdom works very hard to defend their king and their kingdom. And that's why Jesus said that his kingdom is not of this world. Because if it was of this world, he would ask his servants to come and defend him. Because what happens when a king falls? What happens to the kingdom? Khan spins out of control. But not so with Jesus' kingship. In other words, when Jesus says, my kingship is not of this world, it has a different origin and a different order 
What Jesus is saying is his kingship is not born out of conquering, but out of who he is. His kingdom does not spread with the sword, but rather with his word. It brings salvation, not through military might, but through the message of the cross. It's not vulnerable to attack. There's no constant need to defend it because his kingship is eternal. And his servants operate much differently than the servants of the worldly kingdoms. There's no need to protect the king because the king protects its servants. And even though Jesus' kingly reign seems invisible, we know that one day the invisible will be made visible, where his reign will take on a grander form, where he will return and establish his never-ending kingdom and perfect righteousness, and every knee will bow and every tongue will confess. And we, as the people of God living in the kingdom of God, are longing for the day for our victorious king to come and to destroy our enemies once and for all and to dispense justice to the oppressed. And so when Jesus says that his kingship is not of this world, basically is saying it is of a different origin, which means it operates completely differently. And because Jesus' kingship is not of this world, that also means he's a different kind of king. He is not like the kings of this world. He is a king the world has never, ever seen or experienced. He is a king who humbles himself who dies so that he might deliver those who rebel against him. He is a humble king that rules through his suffering. That's all what he communicates in this one sentence. Now, let me ask you an easy question. You think Pilate understood any of that? <laughs> did you understand any of that in the beginning? Probably not. Pilate definitely did not understand it because in Pilate's mind, this kingship, this reign of Jesus is backwards. It's upside down. And so look, look at how Pilate responds, and then Jesus continues to describe his kingship. Look at verse 37. You are a king then, Pilate asked. You say that I'm a king, Jesus replied. I was born for this, and I have come into the world for this, to testify to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth listens to my voice. What is truth? said Pilate. So, so, so as Pilate is, is probing a little harder regarding Jesus' kingship, Jesus continues to talk about his kingship. And this is the second thing he talks about his kingship, if you're taking note, that Jesus' kingship testifies to truth. It testifies to truth. Jesus' royalty rests in the uniqueness of his authority as one who bears witness to the truth. Think about this. If, if you study history and you study the rise and falls of kings and kingdoms, there's common denominators in all of them. How do people come to power? Through honesty? Through proclaiming truth? No, there's normally a slew of treason, betrayal, deceit. That's the kingdom of this world. And yet, what kind of king is Jesus? He's the one 
who testifies to the truth. Because his power and his authority doesn't rest in what we give him. It rests in him and who he is. And he's already said, I am the truth. And as the king who testifies to the truth, what he means by that is the truth that Jesus proclaims comes from God because it is the revelation of God. And in our culture, often we see truth as relative, something that needs to be controlled, something that needs to be spun for our own advantage. But truth is fixed. It flows from the lips of God because God never changes. And when King Jesus comes to reveal the truth of God, he reveals to us who God is and who we are and the need for salvation and the truth that judgment is coming. And God uses the instrument of truth to call men and women to himself. This is God uses truth to bring men and women into the kingdom of God. But what we find ourselves in this world, if you think about it, who's the ruler of this world? He is Satan, and he's known as what? The father of lies. And his lies constantly fill this world. All of us were once children of the rulers of this world. We all have been lied to. We all have been deceived. We all have been held captive to the deception of sin. And the world constantly feeds us with lies after lies, each one bigger and bolder and more outrageous than the last. And King Jesus comes and he speaks truth. And those who respond to the truth are no longer children of the father of lies, but they become children of God. And this is why Jesus says you will know the truth and the truth will set you free. And so if Jesus' kingship testifies to the truth, now Pilate, He's forced to recognize that these charges that are brought against Jesus is false. But then he's also, in a sense, invited in to align himself to King Jesus and to the truth that he testifies. But how does Pilate respond? What does he say? What is truth? He abruptly terminates the interrogation with the cynical question, what is truth? In other words, he is either convinced there is no answer or he doesn't want to hear it because it does not benefit him. And this is what we even see today. What is truth? Or in the 21st century, we phrase the phrase, you speak your own truth. We either don't want to hear it or we don't like it because it does not benefit us. And so Pilate finds himself between a rock and a hard place. He knows Jesus is innocent and the charges brought against Jesus is false. In a sense, he is a king, but his kingdom and his kingship has no threat to the Roman Empire. And if he has any integrity, he would release Jesus and dismiss these charges but we see a twist in the story. Uh, we're almost done here. L look at the second part of verse 38. 
after he said this, he went out to the Jews again and told them, I find no grounds for charging him. That should be the end of the story. But in verse 39, he says, You have a custom that I release one prisoner to you at the Passover. So do you want me to release to you the king of the Jews? They shouted back, Not this man, but Barabbas. Now Barabbas was a revolutionary. Jesus should have been released. But for whatever reason, he gives the crowd an option. Here's your two choices. I release to you Jesus, who is king of the Jews. I find him innocent, and he is in no real danger of Rome. Or I release to you Barabbas. He's a revolutionary. He is guilty of murdering people, and he is a threat to Rome. And who do they want? Release Barabbas. And really what we see here is we see a picture of the gospel. The technical term is substitution. We see the substitutionary atonement. Let me explain to you real simple. You have Jesus who is righteous and innocent and is condemned in the place of Barabbas who is unrighteous and guilty. Jesus substitutes himself in a sinner's place, the innocent dying for the guilty, the righteous dying for the unrighteous, the king dying for his servants. And here's the point, and here, here's my application, and this is what John is trying to commun communicate to us. The reality of it is we are all Barabbas. We were all guilty, stand condemned, and we are waiting for the execution of our sentence. Before Jesus, Barabbas was a, was a dead man, waiting for the cross. But then the king comes. He substitutes himself in our place. He takes our guilt. He faces our condemnation. And the sentence that we were waiting for, he takes it upon himself so that we could be set free of any charges that are rightly brought against us. And I think the big deal is he's not just some any man pulled off of the streets. He is the king of all kings whose reign is eternal and his reign reaches the globe. There is not a sphere that Jesus does not rule. That is the king who dies in our place. And the reality of it is this good news demands a response. There is no neutrality in this good news. Are you going to listen to the truth and align yourself to the truth and submit yourself to the truth? Or are you going to continue in the pathways of lies that leads to destruction where you say, what is truth? I must speak my 
own truth as you continue in your deceptions thinking you are the originator of truth. Just, just think about not just the ignorance, but the arrogance of that statement. I am sovereign enough to make my own truth up. You're claiming to be God by making that statement. And that's what we do. And so do you align yourself to the truth, submit yourself to the truth, a.k.a. King Jesus? Or do you refuse to submit and heal to the king and say, I am my own king? And here's the warning. The first time the king came, he came humbly. He laid down his life so that we can be spared and brought into his kingdom. But the second time he's coming, he's not coming as a humble king. He's coming as a conquering, victorious king. And he will destroy his enemies once and for all. And that will and could include you if you do not submit to the king. And I am begging of you, quit your ignorance and your own sovereign power. You are not king. Submit to the king of all kings who laid down his life for you. Let me pray for us. Our Holy Father, Lord, I am so grateful that you sent King Jesus to come and rescue us. That you would lay down your life for us. We were rebels. We committed treason against you. We deserve death, and you did not give us what we deserve. But instead, you took our punishment upon yourself. You faced our wrath, our sentence, in our place. Lord, I do pray that that truth won't just be a truth we articulate, but a truth we experience, that we would just be overwhelmed by it. That we can say, what a wonderful king, what a mighty king who's laid down his life for me. May it stir in us a, a heart of gratitude and joy and just being overwhelmed that the king of all kings would lay down his life for me. And Lord, I pray for those who have not submitted to you as king, who in a sense are their own king, their own sovereign, who declares their own truth. Lord, can you open up their eyes to their deception and to their destruction that lies ahead? Can you convict them? I just want to give you a moment to respond. Whether for some of you it's a responding and joy and awe that the king laid down his life for you. Or maybe for some of you it's a response of, of repentance, confession, recognizing that the king of kings laid down his life for you. Can you just respond to what the Spirit is revealing to you? As we get ready to sit at the table, um, in one of the songs we sang, the second song, Thank You, Jesus, I just love the phrase, once your enemy, now seated at your table, Jesus, thank you. Like here, we have a picture of the king's table. All of us were committed of treason. Now, I think last time I checked, if you commit treason, that's 
death, death sentence, right? Even here in the 21st century. You all committed treason. Jesus took the death sentence on your behalf. And he welcomes you to the table. Not as loyal subjects. No, no, way better. Sons and daughters. Not as lowly servants. But as heirs to the kingdom of God. Why? Because we did anything for it? Absolutely not. Because of the king's body that was given to us, the king's blood that was shed for us. What a beautiful picture that we get to participate in, that we get to receive. And the reason why we're doing this Sunday after Sunday so that you may receive it is so that you may fix your eyes on King Jesus. That when you feel defeated in this world, when you feel overwhelmed and you feel like a failure, lift up your head. Look to the cross, for there our king rules and reigns. Eat and drink and feast at the king's table as sons and daughters. Don't be discouraged by the deception of the rulers of this world. They're all going to destruction, but you come and you sit at the table. You feast on him. And so as we distribute these elements, this is what I want you to meditate on. Sitting at the king's table as sons and daughters feasting on him. And by faith you're receiving, holding on to the king is coming to make all things new. And he will rule in justice and righteousness. And he will destroy his enemies once and for all. And every wrong in the world will be made right. And we will get to sit and participate in what the king is doing. What an incredible privilege that is to us. Meditate on these truths and let's distribute these elements. I want to read a passage uh, to you out of Revelation chapter 5 verse 8. The Bible uses this imagery of Jesus who is both a king and a sacrificial lamb and interwoves it together as one. It says this, When he took the scroll, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the Lamb. Each one had a harp and golden bowls filled with incense, which are the prayers of the saints. And they sang a new song. You are worthy to take the scroll and open its seals, because you were slaughtered. And you purchase people for God by your blood from every tribe and language and people and nation. You made them a kingdom and priests to our God. And they will reign on the earth. Then I looked and heard the voice of many angels around the throne and also of the living creatures and of the elders. Their numbers was countless, thousands plus thousands of thousands. They said with a loud voice, Worthy is the Lamb who was slaughtered to receive power and riches and wisdom and strength and glory and honor and blessing. I heard every creature in heaven and on earth, under the earth, on the sea, and everything in them say, Blessing and honor and glory and power be to the one seated on the throne and to the Lamb forever and ever. Amen. And the four living creatures said, Amen. And the elders fell down and worshiped. 
picture of the king and the lamb who gave his body for us. Eat it in remembrance of him. The picture of the king and the lamb who was slain for us. By his blood, we were washed. A new covenant we have. We're brought into his kingdom. Drink it in remembrance of him. Can you take just time and just thank the Lord? Just lift him up, praise him. Our mighty king, the lamb who was slain for our sins. Lord, we thank you, we praise you, we give you all the glory, all the honor. God, thank you that you have made us and turned us into your kingdom and a priest, that we are a holy nation, a people of your possession, so that we may declare the praises, for you have called us out of darkness into your marvelous light. Once we were not your people, but now we are your people. Once we did not receive mercy, but now we have received mercy. Lord, may we respond in gratitude and worship as we lay down our lives. As we lift you up. As we praise you. For all glory and all honor belongs to you. We love you. And we praise you. We ask all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. Can we stand? Can we worship our King?